Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. This episode is the eighth part of the Boston Biotech series, produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with Hopkins professionals and alumni who work within the Boston biotech ecosystem. If you are a Johns Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work in Boston. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, and our guest today is Dr. Patricia Phelps. Pat is currently the Associate Director of Academic Career Services at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, as well as a Certified Career and Professional Development Coach. Pat previously led the Professional Development and Career Office, or PDCO, at Hopkins, which provides a variety of programming and training services to PhD students and postdoctoral fellows. Pat has had a long career in professional development for biomedical PhDs, previously overseeing the NIH's Graduate Partnerships Program and establishing the Office for Science, Training, and Diversity at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She additionally was the lead educator for a massively popular exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History called Genome Unlocking Life's Code. Pat received her PhD in physiology from North Carolina State University, where she studied the efficacy of antibiotic administration of a product in the animal health industry before moving on to a long career in product development at Embrex, a biodevices company developing new products for the poultry industry. Pat, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so first off, for anyone who's not too familiar with Hopkins um, or is just starting their career at Hopkins, now that it's August, um, I was wondering if you could briefly discuss what a typical day might look like at the PDCO. That's a great question. Um, You know, probably isn't any typical day, but ideally um, I'll meet with one or two PhD students or postdocs, um, either about exploring career opportunities, um, optimizing their resume, or maybe even doing mock interviews and talking about maybe negotiating job offers. I think that's my favorite part because that's exciting to see the young scientists launch their careers. Um, And then there's, you know, brainstorming about what type of programming we can offer, what type of workshops, and then actually hosting those workshops and leading those events. It must be satisfying, too. Do you get to work with students kind of when they're first coming in um, and then seeing them get that job offer at the end of their graduate or postdoctoral training? Yeah, we get really excited when a first year reaches out to us and wants to start thinking about careers. Um, that's great, but you're, you're exactly right. It's really cool when we start working with someone, say a year out and they're getting ready to think about what job they want to, you know, what career they want to follow. And we work with them to help get them excited about something, their next step, and then help them with their resume, help them network, reach out to other alumni. And then, you know, when you get that email that says, can you help me with a, you know, an interview, mock interview or job negotiation? We're like, yeah, that's awesome. So it is very rewarding. Okay, so I wanted to backtrack a bit because I I think your overview of your career too is just really, really interesting. And you kind of were able to bridge this academia industry back to academia divide, which I don't think a lot of people have experience with. So I was hoping to talk a little bit about your early research too. And notice that 
your PhD research and then subsequent position at Embrex focused on products used in animal health, specifically in the poultry industry. Can you talk a little bit about your research and what problem you were trying to solve and also kind of what motivated you to get into that field? Yeah, definitely. I think one thing that's interesting about working in an animal health field is to get a product to market takes about 50 to 75% less time. So, you know, you can have quicker impact. You know, you're not working trying to get a drug to market that might take like 20 years. Um, The likelihood of success is a little bit better. And then the cost of getting to market is um, much less. But my specific key project was to our company developed a device that vaccinated chicken eggs before they hatched with Merrick's vaccine. And ironically, it used to all be done by hand, but now every chicken in the United States is vaccinated with that device that our company developed. So it's actually a really, really cool story. Um, So, you know, that can actually sort of blow your mind to think that every chicken in the, you know, in the world, basically in the more developed companies is vaccinated as an embryo with the device that we, that small company developed. And then my um, project was to try and develop a similar device that would identify the sex of the chicken before it hatched. Mm. Um, Because what you don't know is maybe that every chicken that hatches for certain industries has to be manually sorted by sex. And so only one sex is used, I think, in a lot of like animal husbandry type practices. Is that right? Or... Exactly. Like in the laying industry, you only want the females, you know, and in the breeding industry, you have separate male and female lines. So you're sorting these. And there's actually like chicken sex in contest every year, just like a hot dog eating contest. <laughs> so I mean, you know, there's tons of really cool stories. And I think that's one thing I liked about the animal health industry. But um, when you think about developing a device like that, you know, in the human health, you know, you can charge a lot for a drug, right? But you think about in the animal health industry, one of the challenges was we had to develop a device that could sort eggs by gender, 20,000 eggs an hour and less than a penny per test. So can you imagine like this is like 20 years ago trying to develop a test for where you could only charge a penny and it had to be 99.5% accurate. Tina got some really high bars there. Right. That's Amazing and also slightly terrifying to think of the scale differences between sometimes I think what we think of for our research and like you said, the ability to make just such a fast impact and to impact such a massive area of commerce is incredible. <laughs> it's it's hard to wrap my mind around even. And it's so cool that you were able to start to have that impact even as a PhD student too. Yeah, it- you know, I, I pinch myself sometimes. I've had such a great career and done so many exciting things. And and the other thing about the animal health industry is one of the things we were doing was we were looking at the new advances in human health and pharmaceutical. And then what of those could we translate into the animal health industry? So, you know, you're also actively making collaborations and reaching out to, to big pharma as well. And they would always get a kick out of working. You know, you, get, they, you know, you can think of a scientist, say in Moderna, getting a call from someone, you know, we want to do this in chickens, you know? And so it immediately sparks a collaboration because they're so intrigued. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so cool. 
So at what point did you start thinking that maybe you were interested in working somewhere outside of that industry, maybe going back either to academia or working in like a higher ed education, like professional development role? What kind of prompted that career switch for you? Yeah, I can't help but be a career coach right now. (laughs) But, you know, I noticed that all the things I was doing outside of work were volunteering for science fairs Mm -hmm. or, you know, sitting on um, the park scholar selection committee for my, you know, um, university. And even at Embrex, I developed a science outreach project where we we bought these little styrofoam incubators and hatched chicken eggs in classrooms. And I developed all the educational materials. So basically I was doing all this stuff, right? And that's what I really loved. And then you combine with it the fact that, you know, if I look at my personality type, you know, the Myers-Briggs, it says I should be a preacher or a therapist. And um, I, I was in a situation where I had a team of about 23 engineers and scientists, and I really didn't enjoy what I was doing. I did, I had, elevated to the point in the company where, you know, I had a big team, I was in meetings all the time, and I wasn't doing and creating anymore. And I wasn't as happy. So I decided to get happy again. And um, that's sort of the impetus for the transition. Did you have any, I guess, unforeseen challenges trying to go back into academia? I didn't. It could be because, you know, the type of position that I transitioned into um, in academia Um, was different than actually doing science or research. Um, And because I had been doing all those things outside of work, science fairs and networking and sitting on boards of nonprofits. So I was gaining all these transferable skills that made me very attractive for the type of job that I applied for. And I actually, you know, just answered a newspaper ad and got an interview. Really? Yeah. Didn't know anyone. Yeah. I guess that would have been the equivalent of LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm trying to think what I would do. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, because I got, I mean, all of my professional development kind of entry points have been through PDCO listservs and emailing. So that makes sense, actually. <laughs> I think I'd also have to share that, you know, I took probably over a 50% salary cut, you know, getting started again. But I had done well in industry with stock options and everything, and I was ready to do things I loved. Yeah, that that's a really good point that people may not necessarily think about when they reach that point or they're thinking about the career move to what kind of negotiating points and what sort of safety net might allow you to make that different negotiating point too. It's a really good, yeah. And it's also important to know too, I've done that a couple of times in my life, but I quickly transitioned back up to a salary um, equivalent to where I was before. So, you know, sometimes you, you, you enter in at a lower salary, but because of your past skills and leadership and experience, you can quickly elevate back up, or at least I was able to. Getting into a little bit about your experience as a professional development and career coach over a number of years now and seeing how biomedical education has evolved in that period of time, And so I know that you had previously worked to develop um, recommendations for the NIH's Biomedical Workforce Task Force. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that is and how that relates to like PhD higher education goals. Yeah, I think the biggest transition um, for PhD and career 
PhD in postdoc career development was when NIH specifically created language about positive outcomes for PhD student training was broadly broad careers, not just academic careers. I think that really changed the game, so to speak. Um, When I first started at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, there were very few offices like the PDCO. I think Vanderbilt was one of the ones that had the first offices. And um, at UNC, we, we were you know, close behind that. But now almost every, you know, institution or school has a, you know, a a career office for PhDs. And um, yeah, it's it's just a a great time, I think, for career development for PhDs and postdocs and young scientists. Not sure if that answered your question, but. Yeah, I guess um, partly what I'm wondering too is how, how have you seen graduate programs sort of change the scope of their programming? to align more with the NIH's new goals if they receive NIH funding, that is, and they're relying on that? I think that they've been extremely um, innovative and accepting of broadening career opportunities, um, allowing, you know, actively bringing in alumni who are in various careers, um, you know, to meet with their PhD students. Um, we have the, what we call the options curriculum. It's a, actually a three-year program. And we have several PhD programs here at Hopkins that require it. You can't graduate with your PhD in, unless you take this career curriculum. And I think it's also important that we not forget academic careers. I think it's one thing that makes me sad sometimes is there's so much talk about alternative or non-academic careers that sometimes I've had students questioning their desire to go into an academic career. And, and that's just as an exciting, you know, opportunity. And I think, you know, um, we need to keep that in the discussion. And that's something that we definitely try and do at PDCO. Yeah, I, I really love that about Hopkins and PDCO too, is that there is this option for everyone. And I know like for us on the biotech podcast, we do tend to focus more on like industry careers or biotech careers, non-academic careers, but it's just, like you said, it's just as important to have that training for someone who wants to become a PI, who wants to learn how to manage a lab. And so actually that perfectly transitions into what I was going to ask you next. So going off the kind of options theme, what would a training plan look like for a PhD student or an early career postdoc who is interested in going into an academic track? What are the kinds of programming you would recommend to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, First and foremost is to focus on your research and to find some research that you're passionate about and to envision your lab. You know, what's your lab going to look like? Who are you going to train? Are you, you know, mainly training undergraduates? Are you, you, would you prefer to work with postdocs? Because that can, you know, impact the type of institution that you'd want to work with. So really starting to create a vision so you can understand where you want to be. Definitely grant writing courses. So we we are very proud of the F um, workshops that we host and also the K award workshops that we host. And then we also have a, a career community through options where we talk about how to set up a lab, how to mentor mentorship versus management, what a lab budget works with, what a lab budget looks like, and then also developing your own research independence. So some, you know, developing some of those skill sets 
um, that you're not taught when you're doing your research, but you're definitely going to need when you're running a lab because it's basically like running your own business. Yeah. And it's hearing you even just list out some of those options too. I'm thinking in the options curriculum, I'm just thinking about, you know, if I were interested in like setting up a lab in industry too, that would, all those skills, maybe aside from the, all the grant writing courses particular, but the rest of that would all be immediately applicable. That's, and it's great to see these kinds of, you know, even from when I like started college and seeing how people are talking about the integration of like academics versus industry careers and how those roles in programming can benefit each other in early in training um, and benefit the scientists that are going to go into either career. That's, it's, it's encouraging. So what, what would you recommend then for someone who is going into, let's say more of a business industry role um, or a biotech role and for their programming instead of an academic role? I think for, for that programming, it's really, you know, comes down to the type of science you're doing and, and um, you know, looking at things that are more um, translational and applicable to industry to help you, you know, transition into a role. But really, I think it's more networking when you're, there's a little bit difference when you're starting out in industry, most likely you're going to be in the bench or, and under the direction of a group leader, and they're going to help develop you, right? An industry or a biotech company has a lot of training opportunities to help make you successful. I think, you know, in academia, it's not necessarily that supportive. You're, you know, here's your lab. Now, you know, what do you do, right? Yeah. They do give you mentors. So I'm not saying that you're left out in the dark, but there's a little bit of difference in the way that you're developed in industry and academia. So I think with industry, just networking and talking to people, understanding if your fit is with a startup, with a small company, with a midsize, with a large company, because they're very different careers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even having a vision of where you might want to take your career once you start in the industry. Do you want to stay at the bench, you know, or do you want to go in regulatory affairs or maybe product development? It's, I, I think it can be so overwhelming too, when you're like first starting out. And so having that programming, I know when I was, <laughs> I'm now on the older side of grad student, but when I first started, I was just going to every seminar possible <laughs> just to understand what was even available to me as a track and gradually whittled it down. So that that was incredibly helpful <laughs> to have that accessible and have the career office at Hopkins. Um, and what's great about doing that strategy is you don't feel like you left something behind. You know, yeah. you, you, you looked at everything and evaluated it and came to a decision that you feel really comfortable with. Getting into kind of this industry role and industry positions, um, our theme for this episode and in the series, we've been talking to a lot of people in industry and in biotech in Boston specifically. Um, and so we wanted to talk about industry resumes and actually the kind of a broader theme of like the, what components actually go into your job application. And so specifically to the resume, this is one that I acutely felt recently <laughs> when I looked at my CV and I realized it was completely geared to an academic um, evaluator. And I, <laughs> that was not exactly what I was applying to. So I was wondering if you could first talk about maybe the different components that you might put if you were applying to, let's say, an academic role or your next step in your academic career versus your first position or early position into an industry career, what kinds of experiences might you want to have on your resume? 
Well, certainly with an academic CV, the focus is your research and a very detailed dive into your research, highlighting your pedigree and your PIs and your publications, um, and also highlighting any teaching and mentorship experience. With an industry resume, it shifts a little bit. Um, One thing that I like to advise PhDs and postdocs is when you're describing your science on an industry resume, don't dive down deep into the specific pathway because most likely you're not applying for a job that's working on that exact pathway. So the more that you can broaden that out and talk about, I've done work with small molecules instead of the actual molecule that you've done and, and speak about your science broadly and speak about your science translationally. You know, I'm studying this mechanism to impact this disease because in industry, they're looking at diseases, not publishing a paper. So I think that's the first thing. And then I always like to talk about balance of a resume. Um, Sometimes a PhD or a postdoc will come in and their resume, they've done a lot of great things. So their resume is only like 20% about their research and 80% about teaching or science fairs or um, doing this leadership. And you're not, you're applying for a research job. So if you're, you're, Resume should be about 75 or 80 percent about your research and 15 or 20 percent about these extracurricular things that you've done. Um, I can go on with other tips if if you like. Yeah, Yeah, I'm wondering, like when you were um, transitioning back into an academic role and so you had all these experiences with nonprofits and, you know, educational groups outside. How did you, I guess, frame that on your resume, too? So I did what's called a functional resume. So a chronological resume lists your most recent research um, and some of the extracurricular activities then don't really fall up top. So in a functional resume, you can create these categories like um, science and education outreach. And then I can put that right up front and center and list all the science and educational outreach activities I did or, you know, diversity work. So it's a way where you can pull out the things that are most important and relevant and put them up front and call attention to them. So what is the difference too between when you're putting together like a resume versus a CV? I know we've been using them slightly interchangeably now, but I think it's an important distinction that I know for some fields like um, consulting, this is a really, really important step in the application cycle. Um, and just polishing that. So what what would be the difference, I guess, in content and also formatting that you would have between those two forms? So a CV is basically a chronology of everything you've ever done. And a resume is a brief synopsis that's relevant to the position that you're applying to. It is a great way to start out describing them. So the CV is, again, going to highlight your research, your training, your publications, your mentorship, Um, And have every detail in there. And, you know, there's usually not a page limit criteria. Whereas a resume, you're going to leave out most of the stuff except those things that are relative. You don't don't want to repeat things. And you're really looking at a document that's one or two pages, three if needed, as long as you're not repeating things. And everything is relevant to the job that you're applying to. And it's, it's spoken in the language of that career. So, for instance, in in the biotech industry, you're not really mentoring students. 
you're supervising or managing junior scientists. So that's a real simple example of how, you know, when you're talking about I mentored an undergraduate, you want to say, you know, I oversaw the project of a junior scientist to do X, Y, and Z. So always speaking in the language of the industry that you're you're targeting your resume for is important too. Yeah, I think that's really, really great advice too, because I you always hear about like, you know, resumes being pulled out for keywords, right? Too. And would is that also what not only, you know, making your resume understandable and very clear by using their language, but also does that help with, you know, keyword searches for job interviews? It, it definitely helps with keyword searches, you know, and I think the other thing that I like to say is show, don't tell. So I'll see many resumes that, for instance, they'll just say the their research project name, but they don't go in to talk about the things that they accomplished doing that research project, like whether they maybe developed a collaboration or led a project where they were, you know, monitoring a clinical trial or wrote a standard operating procedure, which is, you know, very important in industry. Those things are often left out. And then the other thing that I note is they'll talk about the task they did. I ran this assay. But what you really want to do is, okay, you ran that assay, but so what? What impact did you have? You know, did you develop an assay and reduce the, the time or, you know, the, the accuracy? And if you did, by how much did you improve the accuracy of that device? Or did you change the field or discover something special? So really thinking about impact and not just what you did, but when you did it, what happened? Because you're really marketing and selling yourself. Um, you know, you're not really marketing you're selling yourself that much in a CV. So that's something I think that's really important too. Yeah. Um, so following that tip, what are some other ways that someone can stand out if they're looking for, you know, like let's say this is their dream position, but they're nervous because they, and you can tell I'm talking about myself here. <laughs> they maybe haven't worked in that field before. Um, and they really want, you know, their first shot opportunity and they're unsure how to trans like make their skills clearly defined. I think what you just said is phenomenal advice and very grateful to the people that helped me too. <laughs> um, but yeah, what else can someone do to stand out when they're worried it's going to be a highly competitive job? Yeah. I always, when I'm working with a PhD or a postdoc, I say, tell me the th three things um, that are unique about you. Um, and use adjectives to describe that, whether it's creative, whether it's detail oriented, you know, start understanding who you are because you can't market yourself until you have a, a really firm understanding of what it is you're trying to market. And in addition to who you are and, and what those assets are, what are two to five of your greatest accomplishments as a you know, scientist? And make sure that you're marketing those very clearly in your resume. So if it's creative, then you're going to use words like innovative, you know, first developed, you know, those adjectives that show that you're innovative and then also push yourself to think, okay, I believe I'm innovative. What were the times when I've innovative and how have I included that in my resume? Um, you can also, you know, I, I think that's, that's key there. Um, another thing is to use an executive summary at the top of your resume. I really like five to seven bullet points 
with the first one broadly describing yourself. I'm a neuroscientist with X years of experience with expertise in both in vivo and in vitro experimentations. Um, you know, maybe then you have a huge impact of something that you, you know, very proud of scientifically, maybe two of those, if you've got those things, um, you know, some transferable skills, leadership experience or project manage experience, describing, you know, the complexity of the project, the cost of the project, maybe, you know, how many collaborators were on that project, just any details that, that, that make it feel real, you know, don't just tell me that you, um, you know, are a good writer, right? And I hate to see a resume that says, excellent public speaking skills. You know, anyone can say that. What you really want to see is experienced public speaker, you know, won first place for poster award at this scientific conference. So you showed me that you're a public speaker. I think the last tip that I'd like to say is once you get a good draft, like if you've worked with the PCO, then it's a great time to reach out to alumni um, from your institution that are in the industry. And everyone, you know, is going to help you when you say, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to launch my career in industry. You know, I'm only familiar with academic CVs. Would you mind taking a look at the resume that I've developed and giving me your feedback? Because they're the ones that can really pick up on things you could add or ways to improvement. And not only are you getting great advice on your resume, but you're also networking. Because now they know that you're out in the field and, um, you know, they've got your resume in their hands and you never know that that could turn into a great connection while giving you great advice as well. Yeah, that that is fantastic advice. Um, and then lastly, I guess, are there any common mistakes people make other than maybe not being the most effective communicator? Anything that you've seen in your experience that maybe people it's like their inclination to put on there or to do with the resume or CV that is not actually productive. I think just, you know, I've mentioned a lot of things, but one thing I haven't mentioned is just over formatting. Um, and sometimes I get a resume and they've spent so much time on formatting that it's distracting from the content. Your focus should really be on the content and selling yourself. Um, and just, you know, again, not using metrics, just, um, talking too detailed about your science and pathways, maybe blocks of text. I was reviewing one this morning that the first one fourth or one third of the page was a, a block of text detailed about their research that they did. It was very CV oriented, almost like a bio sketch. And this was for, you know, an industry resume. And you have to think that the person that's looking at your resume they're reviewing 100, 200 resumes, you know, and you need to catch their attention. It's almost like that executive summary can be a movie trailer and you have to make them want to watch that movie or read the rest of your resume. So you've got to catch their attention really quickly and crisply. I love that. And then just to wrap up, I know you mentioned reaching out to alumni and you briefly talked about like what services the PDCO has, but are there any other resources that you like or would recommend people go to for examples or help putting their resume or CV together? Uh, on our website, we have numerous examples of resumes and cover letters for different industries and for biotech. Um, so that can be a great resource just to see what other people have done and how they've described themselves in their research. Um, other than that, just relax and tell your story. Um, you know, there, there's no true formula. It's, it's just the story of you and, and embrace and get excited about all the great things that you have to offer. 
the one thing that, you know, I've learned in my career is to make sure that you try something out. And that's a piece of advice that I really like to share. And the best example is you asked me about transitioning from the bio, you know, the, the agricultural um, industry um, into academia or education outreach. And I always, the, what I really want to do is be a biology teacher. I always thought or dreamed of being a high school biology teacher. And so that was what I was going to do. I had, you know, actually pulled down the, the praxis exam that you have to take to teach, you know, high school biology. And someone says, well, you know, you might want to try it before you just jump into it. Um, and I said, well, okay. And so I went out and got some student teaching jobs or these, we call this temporary teachers. Um, the, it, it's, it's, uh, Substitute teaching. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I worked with a school and got a substitute teaching job. And they gave me a lot of tips and let me monitor classrooms. And I got in the classroom. I absolutely hated it. You know, so I saved myself a lot of time by trying it because, you know, I would have had to gone through training to become a high school biology teacher. And um, so I realized what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it. And what I really like is doing workshops um, and one-on-one coaching um, but not things that students are required to take and they don't really want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't fun for me. <laughs> so, you know, definitely, <laughs> you know, trying something out and, and seeing what, what a job's really like um, was a huge asset. Thank you so much, Pat, for coming on the podcast. I think you gave just amazing advice that anybody can use really at any stage of their career, um, but especially if they're, you know, early stage career scientists, which I know is going to be beneficial to a lot of our audience. Okay. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And I'm, I'm glad it was okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Thanks so much. I still have imposter syndrome. <laughs> Any tips on not having that? Cause I do too. <laughs> I think just admitting it and then, you know, hearing everybody else say, yeah, me too. <laughs> Well, me too. (laughs) Thank you so much again, Pat. This was a joy to speak with you. Uh, You too. It's a delight. And reach out to me if you need help with your resume. I will. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.